if I'm a CEO, everyone's jobs on the line. How do I keep the money coming in? How do I keep this thing afloat? So you can it, it, the 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 the, def, the definition of what your drivers are and what you are going to be good at is basically what do you want to have as your problem when you go home. Hello and welcome back to another episode where we are again in the corporate world. And today's episode, we focus on the C-suite. So working at a senior level in organizations, either as a chief executive officer or a chief operations officer. And to address the C-suite hopping and working at an interim as an interim, so having a really great breadth of what's going on in the market and being able to hop into different companies. I um, I brought in one of my really great friends, uh, Guy Gross, who also, I also went to med school with him. Um, he's an entrepreneur, former doctor, and he's worked in growth and innovation with almost 50 companies in the private and public healthcare spaces, as well as a number of other sectors, I have to say. Um, so watch this episode if you are one who is shooting for the stars, if you are passionate about really making a difference at a senior level as a leader of a company, then find out more about what actually makes companies fail and what are really the essential things that decision makers are looking for when it comes to a great leader. Um, so before we get into that, don't forget to subscribe, medicfootprints.org forward slash join our mission. And don't forget, we are running a phenomenal commercial readiness course. So that is part of our online Doctors in Industry Fellowship. Um, so the course is starting November the 28th. So if you go to medicfootprints.org forward slash commercial to join the course, if it's past November the 28th and listening to this, then head over to medicfootprints.org forward slash industry and there may be some opportunities waiting for you. Anyway, let's get on with this exciting episode. So let's get real. Our value as doctors has significantly diminished over the last decade. So how can we turn that around by upskilling and creating rewarding and impactful careers on our own terms? Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers. I'm your host, Dr. Baina Bubbers-Jones, and I'm on a mission to connect one million talented doctors with the best in diverse career opportunities. Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers. And with this particular episode, we are going back to the C-suite um, at senior, senior level. So we're talking chief executive officer, chief operating officer, is it possible for doctors to be working at that level from a clinical career? So in order to address this particular question, I've invited a good friend of mine, Guy Gross, who actually went to my medical school. I've, I've, I've met a lot of doctors who come out of Nottingham who are really enjoying diverse careers. Nottingham Med School, everybody, it's great. Um, it gets you thinking outside of the box, let's put it that way. Um, so we're going to be talking about... Yeah, C-suite hopping, because Guy has not only worked with one, he's worked with several companies, particularly in the health tech space and outside of healthcare. So we're going to hear a little bit more about that. Um, and we're going to find out a bit more about 
how he's designed his career, particularly as a non-clinical consultant, because a lot of these opportunities that he's ended up, ended up in is through advising and consulting. Um, so anyway, welcome, Guy, to the podcast. Hey, nice to see you, Vena. <laughs> Great to see you too. So let's get started. So we both went to Nottingham Medical School. Um, I didn't know that actually when I first met Guy. It was through a friend of us, a mutual friend of ours. Um, and so I want to I hear from you because you didn't actually go into clinical practice, did you? I mean, tell, tell me a little bit more what happened after you graduated. Well, I was the I was the one percent who graduated and left. Um, I had kind of so a set of circumstances had arisen where whilst I was studying, I'd been working uh, and one of the companies I was working with offered me uh, almost a, an offer I couldn't refer views really um which i can go into a bit more detail but effectively left straight away and i think there were about two people out of 300 who left in the first two years when i was studying uh in fact i would struggle to look back and see many of my year that i was in touch with who actually left many have gone to have successful clinical careers that's interesting because obviously you'd spent five years training as a clinician as a doctor but then already you were tempted to jump outside of that. So what is it that motivated you to actually move beyond medicine at that point? I had done businessy things before, during and after med school. I'd started, I've been running live music events for a very long time uh, and really loving that. I had got involved at medical school with uh, earning money while I was studying. So I, I ended up working with a fashion company called Specialty Retail Group. They owned a chain of stores uh, back in 2002 when I was studying. They were still going and um, had got involved with turning around some of their, their sort of menswear stores. Um, the CEO was looking to to turn that company into something that could sell it was a family business they had 50 stores and they were looking to do a couple of acquisitions they were looking to optimize some of their departments that weren't performing particularly well to diversify the board so it was a more professional board um and this was before i had joined them more formally i'd been working at their one store in nottingham and on the back of that was um offered a job where they said you know we, we can give you a job um you we've spoken to med school you can go back after a year if you don't think this is the right career for you but we think we could use your skills and we'll also pay you handsomely for it so it was a bit of a no-brainer I'd been doing stuff uh, I was a bit sad about medicine because I'd seen a lot of my peers in area ahead of me in, in their careers where I had wanted to go into maybe orthopedics or emergency medicine and as junior doctors, they were having a pretty miserable time of it. And it was also at a time where I saw a couple of friends of mine wanted to go into things like cardiothoracics and others when they were shutting down the opportunities when people had been training for five out of seven years on that sort of pathway. And I thought, I just want to have control over my career and control over uh, knowing where I want to be in five, 10 years time. And I felt that that wasn't happening in the NHS. Uh, and I also saw some pretty significant changes. Changes. We're moving towards the 40-hour working directive with European laws. And it went from being a career that was all about caring and putting in the hours and getting out of it what you put in, in terms of sense of um, meeting your sort of moral and ethical reasons for doing medicine in the first place, to becoming a cog in the machine where you had less and less control over what you wanted to do. Um, and fast forward 15, 20 years on, and suddenly you've got everyone as an employee rather than having a, a an opportunity to uh, build their own portfolio within the NHS in terms of diversifying their career. Uh, so, so yeah, I feel like it was the right choice at the right time for me back then. 
Um, uh-huh. And I had had an interest in business. I knew nothing about business. I had just done a few things. So um, one of the other things I'd done was just to sort of dabble in whether this was something I wanted to do. Uh, I'd worked with a local restaurant and a toy store and a pizza shop. Um, and I had gone in to help them understand very basic maths around how to make money based on understanding the you know what what was their costs uh yeah. very simple stuff and just having a, a brain on you is often enough you know not 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 much more than that to, to really help people i i i I'm really fascinated about this because, yeah, it is, it is hugely diverse. I think back to med school and the only thing that I knew at med school was just focusing on getting my exams done, getting my tick box done, showing up at Derby Royal or Derby General, driving there, driving, you know, all, all of that stuff, right, for five years. I literally, I worked at a bar for like a few months and it just didn't work out. So I'd love to find out more, A, how, how did you find the time to really expand your interests in this way? And B, how do you go from working in a store to turning the business around on a, on a national scale? Like, what was that transition considering okay. you're a medical student? So um, I, I think when I started out, it was very much just testing the water to see what I could do. Uh-huh. Um, I, I had thought that life at that point was about filling the gaps in my life that I didn't know enough about. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was the right strategy at that point, going out and just discovering what it was like to be in business and around business and and what making money really looked like. Because I, I wasn't, I'm still not particularly financially driven. I really am still outcome driven in pretty much every aspect of what I do. Um, it happens that as you get better and more experienced and more senior, you happen to earn more money with it. But that's been more of a uh, a product of longevity than of my, uh, my necessarily my, my driver. Um, so when I was at med school, it was experimenting. I then went into um, learning from having some of this success that my skills needed to be stretched. I, I didn't know enough. I, I had no idea what due diligence was when I left med school and suddenly was thrown in to look at six companies and do due diligence. Um, I, I took, I, you know, I went away and looked up in a dictionary what that meant, and I, uh, I started to understand. <laughs> yeah. what, what, I had no idea what a cash Back flow in the statement day when was. When people had dictionaries to look up. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I did was launch a digital business back in two thousand and two. Uh, wow, they they had really? no online store. Um, so, oh, wow. you know, this was really early days of the internet as well. So it was very much about the hustle. Um, none of these businesses that I had been working with had any digital shop front. So th- this, was a, this wasn't this was a thing. Uh, I think I was on MySpace probably back then and maybe Facebook. <laughs> um, I, I, I got to know Facebook. I, I know. And Facebook, I think I was one of the first 10 million users. So I feel very, very lucky now looking back at how many billions of users there are. Um, but it, I was a very early adopter in tech as well. So I did get to get get involved in some of the internet things. And through my music stuff, actually, I got involved with the boards of Google and YouTube and face, Facebook and Virgin, a number of other players, uh, really weirdly, can completely coincidentally and and um, never went that route. But I kind of wish I had done because it was literally day one of them entering the UK market for all of them. So how did that happen through, through music out of curiosity? So I used to run live music events on a Monday night with some incredible people. Um, John Altman, who was a guy that wrote the score for Funny Bones the movie and 
famously put the whistle and always look on the bright side of life. That's sort of his big thing. Annoyingly wrote the Sheila's Wheels advert as well. Um, but then there was another guy called Patrick Allen, and he was the director of talent at Star Search in the US who found all the Disney kids and brought them on to uh, their fame. And this Monday night was just a place where every uh major artist management uh, session musician uh choreographer makeup artist everybody would rock up and it was a brilliant night um and i used to have to be the person that would bring the audiences together because one of my early skills i recognized was was networking um and i I started selling corporate tickets and then I started cold calling and finding corporates and some of those sexy corporates were new upcoming technology companies. Uh, so in the early days, we had the Winklebross brothers show up. We had uh, they were co-founders with uh, Zuckerberg of, of Facebook. We had uh, Richard Branson and his team. The day they sold Zavi in 2006 were down at my events. This was again a little further down the road. All sorts of really interesting groups of people that I just got to know um and that networking thing was probably still one of the things I absolutely pride myself on as being you know that's a real value generator at a personal level being able mm. to go speak to people relate directly to understanding them what they how they look at the world and having conversations that are interesting that they want to engage in I, I mean I think that really brings us to the next point which is the skills that decision makers find extremely valuable so obviously you've touched upon the importance of networking aka building relationships leveraging those relationships having the right conversations recognizing the value in those relationships and that kind of making the most of that in the longer term so it's not just a transactional occurrence what other I mean Let's fast forward to today, especially for doctors who are looking to develop themselves in the business world. What yep. other skills are deemed important for decision makers um, when it comes to working at a senior level, so C-suite level? So it's, it's really interesting. I, I Over time, I've learned it's probably two things. Mm -hmm. um, one is the skills that you can translate from, from medicine as being a doctor. So one of the amazing things that doctors do that other people don't is look at things through a lens of, uh, of logic. Um, you know, you've got your surgical sieve. You ask questions like, is it before, during or after an organ where you've got a problem? Uh, business is no different. When I consider problems in business, I look at things, is it is it pre-sales? Is it the problem with landing the sale or is it the after sales, for example? And, and it's a very logical application where we are able to rapidly put together frameworks, I would say, more doctors than I know other people around how to solve problems. And that, that's a massive win. Uh, equally, the sales to the bedside manner, the problem solving capabilities just on day to day, the ability to deal with life and death type situations and make rapid and good decisions. All those things are doctory things that you can turn into translatable skills in, in business. But what I soon realized was actually it's what makes you unique that is the thing you work on. I used to think you work on all the skills you don't know, and it definitely helps. For example, having I, I chose to do an MBA because I didn't know enough about business, and that was definitely a, a massive investment and well worth it in my case to, to do that because it gave me an understanding of all the financial pieces and the strategic models and the marketing models and various other things. And so general development in that way definitely worked for me. But when it comes to growing yourself, it's very much about identifying what are your own superpowers. Um, and when I look at that for myself, it's taken me a very long time, probably 15, 20 years to identify in myself what makes me unique as a person. 
Um, I would say uh, the ability to walk into a room full of smoke and just point directly to the fire. So I'll walk in a room with with full of business people who are talking about the problems in the business. Elephant and I'm like, thing. here's the biggest problem you've got, right? Just handing yeah. it back to them. Um, the second thing is making extremely complicated things as simple as possible. Really, really complex ideas. Um, that's a skill that I have. And um, that really helps, obviously, from, an, from a strategic and, and senior operational level. Uh, and then I would say, again, dealing with spotting patterns. So being given immense, immense, immense amounts of information and being able to leap on within that what is important and linking out the patterns that perhaps aren't there immediately to see. Those are the three things that I've kind of learned for myself are our superpowers, networking aside, because the networking thing is something that I've built. And I mean, it's a running theme for me that when I have done things, for example, the MBA, I could have just done a very basic MBA, read a bunch of books, stayed at home, and that would have been great. But the whole opportunity of the MBA was for me to identify what I did and didn't want to do as a career and be able to reach out to all the alumni and be able to build my network. And I chose to do my MBA where I wanted to be because obviously the vast majority of people who do an MBA in London will be from England, probably, or a significant mm-hmm. proportion will end up working here. Mm-hmm. So that those are sort of my lessons of, of what the transferable skills and what to work on. Uh, there are business basics. If you feel you'd have gaps in your knowledge, just pick up a book and read enough about it to get the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, I am terrible at finances in terms of, you know, I'm never going to be a CFO or, or, an AC, or an accountant. But what I can do is know when the numbers are good or bad and to where to look where it's a bit odd. Um, and that that's all I need. I can have accountants there to do that. They are trained and they're brilliant at that. So why would I build my skill set to try and do a half job at it? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So, I mean, and just kind of recapping. So it's really important to identify what your superpower is. And so I guess that also takes a period of reflection and internalization. I mean, how did you actually go through that process? What did that look like for you? I think it was, I, I probably could have done it earlier, but I think I thought uh, I thought I was good at lots of things that have turned out not to be true. Mm. So they're, they're almost false flags. <laughs> you know, they, I, I go in believing that I'm really good at certain things and then proofs in the pudding where you're just not. Um, I mm. thought I would be a great um, people person as in running, t- running um, almost the hr side of things and and um turns out that wasn't where my forte is culture is i can absolutely develop great cultures in organizations that i've walked into but i'm not the person who is going to run or manage the the human resources or people side of it uh, what i can do is guide what good looks like and leave someone to do that so again that's where i've ended up and operations i've also realized you know there's there's different phases of companies and this is something you don't realize when you, unless you've been through a lot of this, there is the founder part of a journey, which is the ability to overcome inertia with a group of people who have the oomph behind them to stick it out and just get it done by any means necessary. Then you have the growth phase where once you've proved that you've got a thing that works, you need to scale it a totally different set of skills around uh, identifying, optimizing, and managing things as they grow. And then once you're big, you just want someone who's a safe pair of hands to run that. Just and so that, you yeah. have to identify where you fit 
in the life cycle of companies as well with your temperament and with your skill set and so for me yes i'm a coo but i am not a ceo a coo who is ever going to be that safe pair of hand multi-billion dollar corporation running person you want someone who's you know almost a civil servant by background who wakes up and is a natural project manager whereas oh. i'm a hustler and an entrepreneur who just wants to change and get things right and uh-huh. will not sleep to get it done and so i can do the first bit of the hustle and i can do the growth bit which happens to have been a skill i've realized over time as i've uh-huh. grown a number of companies and and stayed in post and made them work uh-huh. so it, it really is really important to identify the life cycle where in the life cycle you think your temperament is best and identify companies in that space whether it's mm-hmm. complete startup growth or uh, a large infrastructure business mm-hmm. uh, big corporates so it's interesting so i mean in that in that you've also articulated the differences between the ceo and the chief of, of operations role and like from what you've described the mindset is the key thing that's completely different and the approach um and yeah tell me tell us a little bit more because obviously you've worked in both scenarios a number of times um tell us a bit more about what the key differences are because I've seen doctors who who've worked in in both types of of Mm. situations as well as like commercial directors but what would you say are there any other insights you could give us as to how to differentiate the two and where doctors should kind of focus their direction on on if that makes any sense actually answer the question uh, so the, yeah. they're, they're not quite connected right the the mm. the way you differentiate the roles on the board isn't what they do it's what keeps them awake at night so if i'm a chief medical officer i worry about patients dying or not meeting regulatory requirements or mm. um failing cqc right if i am a chief operations officer i worry about wait lists and customer success and delivering to contract requirements and making sure that the people internally are happy if i'm a ceo everyone's jobs on the line how do i keep the money coming in how do i keep this thing afloat so you can the 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 definition of what your drivers are and what you are going to be good at is basically what do you want to have as your problem when you go home uh you can leave don't get me wrong like of course you leave work behind but it's it's the inference you know that that's that's the difference so as a chief operations officer i like that because there's two sides to a business there's making money and there is delivery and keeping costs down and i've been really good at at both sides so as a ceo you do do both but i don't love sales i don't love living and dying by the sword unless i happen to be uh with a product that i really truly believe in and there ain't that many out there in health tech that are so differentiated and have such huge opportunity that i would go i'm going to hang my hook on this i believe in it so much that that i'm there whereas operations you can do that in any company and be happy because it's it's about how you make the system you are in work better rather mm-hmm. than focusing on the external or, or the product as much uh, if that makes sense no no it does i think i think it's really interesting and and just going back so as we speak you have kindly volunteered <laughs> <laughs> to cover the money side of things yeah. on our commercial course that's coming up. So it's 28th of November. Um, and you said that you are not very good at money. Yeah. <laughs> Top of the well, course, it's... everyone. Um, so... no, but I'd, I'd love to hear a lot more of that because we know that as doctors, stereotypically, we're not financially literate. But clearly, I've seen some of your spreadsheets 
I know that you are in relation to a lot of people. Otherwise, I would not have asked you. <laughs> so, yeah, no, tell, tell me a little bit more about what makes someone financially literate. So let me let me just explain. There's a very big difference between being an accountant um, oh, yeah. and, uh, versus someone who is financially literate. So, yeah. I don't want to be an accountant and I was never that good at maths, right? I'm not someone who Me too. just does that, but I, I yeah. absolutely know what good looks like and I absolutely can control management accounts and financial stuff within a business well, whether that's dealing with investors or making investments or otherwise. So as a person who comes out, so my, my first experience of financials was literally, I mentioned doing the due diligence on this com on six companies, and I was thrown these things called a cash flow statement, a profit and loss statement, and a balance sheet for six different companies, having absolutely no idea what any of them really meant, right? And, and so just that basic level of literacy, even understanding what those sheets represent is important. Um, there are some basic things that come out from this. So everyone's heard of cash, everyone's heard of, of a profit and loss, and everyone knows what a, a turnover is. But one, there's little mantras that you learn, like turnover is vanity. How much money you bring in is kind of irrelevant if you make no money on it. You know, if I gave away everyone a Porsche for a thousand pounds in this country, I would make a thousand times 60 million pounds. I, you know, I'm going to be 60 billion pounds better off. The reality is, of course, I'm not going to sell a Porsche for a thousand pounds because I'd be losing about a hundred thousand pounds on each car. And therefore that doesn't make sense. So the vanity piece about the total income is important to understand. It's, it's irrelevant almost. Having a view of your profit and loss is accountancy. It is a measure of what are the assets you own? What's the cash? What's the uh, debt that you owe almost because debt can become an asset if, if if you it's weird but it is um in accountancy terms another thing is completely counterintuitive and i did not understand and i probably still barely do um but if you add up the total number of assets you have in the company then it is equivalent to the total amount of debt you have in the company plus the total amount of profit and your profit and p l is what often is the de determinant the value of a company in many many cases so people will look at your profit and loss um which is effectively a sanity check it gives so you got your your vanity and your turnover you've got your sanity in your pnl and that tells you are you making money are you losing money from an accounting perspective but that doesn't actually help you on a day-to-day -day basis the thing that really matters is how much cash you have access to because without cash you can't pay people you can't buy products you can't buy um uh, or, or uh develop in any innovations or invest um, and that is called reality so the important thing about cash is understanding that if you always need to try and move the people you owe money to further away so pay them later that gives you more cash and ask for money up front from the people you sell to sooner and that brings you your money earlier and stretches out the amount of cash you have so when you see things like a 30 or a 60 day payment term that usually means you are going to pay someone within 30 days of them asking for the money. That gives you 30 days to find the money that you, you've got the money, you've, you've delivered a service now, you're paying for it later. But often you'll invoice someone, uh, you'll invoice your customers and ask for payment ahead of time or a share ahead of time so that as you go and try and either sell your product or develop some piece of the product, you you have more money there. So that's your, uh. your first simple lesson, your, your ah. vanity 
your sanity and your reality of looking at your turnover, your P&L and your cash flow. But there are lots of little lessons like that that are you only need to probably learn 10 of those sorts of things to have mm-hmm. a pretty good cursory view and understanding of finances within a company. But that is mm-hmm. just finances. You also need to understand business strategy, how cust- what, what is a, uh, what does customer sales look like uh, understanding how project management works and there's lots of three letter shortenings that you've never heard of in business just as there are billions of them in healthcare uh, and it's getting on top of some of those things to really be able to talk the lingo and sound like you know what you're talking about if you want to change career and sound credible well i think that's great and and everything that you mentioned i think even learning it from a high level perspective and overview I think it's really essential for a lot of doctors, especially if they are moving into industry, because those kind of questions tend to come up, whether they're applying for jobs or even even building up their own businesses. It's important to know the basics. It doesn't need to be in detail, as you said. You know, you don't have to be an accountant to know this stuff. You don't have to do an MBA. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. Um, but this is core essential knowledge that you need to get to grips with moving into industry and growing into an industry um so i'm really glad you highlighted that um and so let i mean let's end off with um i I know obviously you're you're highly opinionated (laughs) and and you've got a really great perspective on the health tech healthcare economics landscape um i'd love to hear more from you about why do certain health tech companies thrive and why do certain health tech companies fail? Very high level, based on what you've seen in the last few years. What are the key differentiators in your experience? First thing you've got to just frame how much time I've got, because this could be a two-day lecture. High uh, level, be a 20... <laughs> few minutes opinion. <laughs> uh, okay, so look, there, there are some very basic things that people misunderstand about mm-hmm. selling to the NHS and what they can buy. The most important thing is probably around prevention and we talk about prevention as one thing but in fact it's three things you've got primary prevention which is stopping diseases you've got secondary prevention which is slowing it down you know long-term conditions and and preventing kidney failure in uh, diabetes for example and then you've got tertiary prevention which is slowing down and optimizing the use of resources that we've got to manage those people within the system and when I did an analysis of the five-year forward view and the long-term plan and the more recent documents that have come out on IT strategy, there is various running themes. And I also looked, by the way, at 20 of the 42 ICS uh, formation documents. As I went line by so line... for everyone that doesn't know any of those things, could yes. you outline what you mean? So five-year forward view. So for those people who so aren't were... based in the UK or understand anything about NHS policy yes. and strategy, what is what is that? So there are government documents and white papers that go through, created usually by the uh, Secretary of State for Health, and it will Mm -hmm. determine how during that party's um, uh, tenure, they plan to spend money and what they're going to invest in. So the five-year forward view is effectively a view on on how the, the... conservative government planned to change healthcare and standardize or uh, maneuver towards this new integrated model of care and digitizing everything um, which is still five years on uh, not really where it needs to be or on a journey you could even determine an endpoint of so all of these all of these documents that are talking about integrated care that means 
connecting across the system from primary care, secondary care, community care, mental health and social care and bringing them into a continuum. Um, extremely important because it means that the buckets of money are all in one place. Uh, one of the biggest barriers without that is that someone spends money in one part of the system to realise a benefit elsewhere in the system. So the person who invests get penalised because they've got no return on that investment. And there's a benefit somewhere else which results in money or spending that can be realised in their bit. Blending those buckets is the idea of integrated care systems, very similar to the accountable care organisations over in the US. Um, and the idea of that is you can start moving into prevention. Uh, but what we mean by prevention at the moment is uh, as I was going to say, 85% of all of the terminology and uh, conversation is about tertiary prevention, which is optimising the use and spend of money now. Um, so that means reducing bed days. It means taking people and shortening queues. It means uh, helping identify people who are what we call um, frequent flyers, I, people who with multiple or individual long-term conditions who repeatedly end up back in the hospital uh, with exacerbations of their conditions. And so identifying that is what we mean by prevention is really important because if the NHS is looking at that as the focus of their strategy, then trying to treat prevention as, well, we're going to help people who are well stay thin uh, and not gain weight is a problem. But if you identify people who potentially have diabetes, who have exacerbations, and you want to help them with their weight in the current environment you're far more likely to succeed and have successful conversations and engagement if you come at it from an angle which helps the nhs achieve its agenda of keeping this tightly wound machine that is perpetually growing in demand and lack of money uh going then you're more likely to to, to, to win and so for me the reason why a lot of health tech fails is they don't they completely fail to understand that if you're, if you're talking about a narrative of keeping people well for another 10 years and preventing long-term disease, the challenge with that is, if I'm an investor in that as a health system, then I'm not going to see my money back for 10 years. But if I can help you now identify people who are continuously coming back to hospital and stop those people coming back, then that's in-year savings. I'm going to be investing £10,000 in an app for 50 people or something like that I don't know and of those 50 people I can demonstrate that 10 didn't come into hospital that would have been predicted to based on historic performance of those sorts of individuals so there, there is a really clear narrative about what can be invested in or not and you have to understand the currencies safe bed days improved capacity saving um uh, re reduced um any attendances uh, there's all sorts of currencies like that which pay uh and can be paid for and and uh, validated models versus trying to do things in primary and secondary prevention which are far harder to land mm. tell me about telemedicine we so, we've seen we've seen a number of companies <laughs> yeah well, uh fold or fall or fail however you want to describe it despite a huge amount of financial backing, a, a huge amount of publicity uh, yeah. on both sides, on the growth and the decline. I'm sure there's going to be several Netflix uh, shows out about that. But tell us more, like, why, why are these companies failing? Because at the end of the day, what we hear from doctors is that they all, everyone wants to join a health tech company, everyone wants to get into health tech, but there is the ongoing concern about job stability, financial security, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. how could they identify a company was actually going to be there for the longer term so the the challenge right now is that the infrastructure is not there to sustain telemedicine uh, 
Um, when you look at what happened over COVID, there was a growth. Uh, so pre-COVID, there were four or five companies that were listed companies that were doing very well. Then suddenly COVID took off and we saw an increase in the utilization of those companies. We saw the number of people using them go up by uh, upwards of four or five hundred percent. And as we saw that utilization go up, we saw the share prices go up. And so everything looked hunky dory. We thought, yay, the NHS is going to start embedding telemedicine. It's going to be the staple going forwards. Um, as long as there is um, this pandemic, we know 100 percent of people are going to be off online using technology and we suspect it will stay. But what ended up happening was that we saw that the payers of this had been paying those providers on a capitated model. That means they had a million people and they paid for 5% utilization, assuming that 5% of people would actually use the service. But then COVID comes along and suddenly you've got this uptick. They're not paying you anymore for those patients as a payer. So as a provider, you're suddenly absorbing a hit of taking on six to 10 times as many patients as you had been seeing pre-pandemic for the same money. Mm. So the uptick in share price based on valuation, based on the number of patients was not reflective of uh, those providers. And what ended up happening was that all those technology providers who were delivering care in that model were stripping out any value that they had beyond the delivery of care they were trying to work out how to ship people out of the delivery of telemedical consultations by introducing blockers like um, triage tools and self-management tools and apps uh, they were trying to ship out people who were too high of acuity to go straight to uh, their offline um, consultations uh, which left a very limited number of people getting access to those telemedicine calls for that very reason, that there was no more money being paid in the system. Um, and then what happened was the vaccine came out. We saw the share price fall because people started thinking, hold on a sec, this isn't going to last forever. And then we saw that all the sale targets were being missed. Um, and there were a bunch of new entrants around the time that this was all happening as well. Um, so it was all becoming very crunched and what we saw was that there was a fight within the nhs between people like um cree with livy and with um babylon who were effectively going down the route of as uh, as many consults as possible in a given hour which is great if you're a junior doctor but if you feel as a senior doctor very unfulfilled in doing eight minute consults then you'll start really looking elsewhere in the market so as a provider teledoc who i was the uk coo of um, i made a decision we weren't going to go below three or four consults an hour so 15 to 20 minute consults um we could do that because we we knew that we had excellent gps who were giving us good quality we knew that we had tools that were appropriately making sure the right people got to consultations and we had uh, a knowledge that we had the right types of support for people if they weren't um, and we stuck to our guns, refusing to enter that battle of, of shrinking down to eight an hour, six, six to seven hour uh, uh -huh. consults. Uh -huh. What we ended up seeing was that because of the stripping out of all of that value that happened during COVID, the price per consult turned out more per consult online than offline. And the unit pricing was completely broken. Uh -huh. So when uh -huh. you saw people like Livy and Babylon offering their services at 15, 20 pounds a consult, there was just absolutely no way that the, the, the financials could add could stack up. Mm. And that's where Babylon paid their price, you know, going out and underselling to large books of people over in the US. And by, by that, I mean a book of insurance. So they would have 5 million people and will deliver to that many people for this price and just massively lowballing. So they mm. had the number of people that they were building without having a mm. business case underpinning it.
so we, we've seen that in an, in a lot of companies in telemedicine where just to get in and to land grab they've underpriced and then it's come back to bite them in the end um that's not the full story there are other things that happen within babylon but that was certainly a massive contributor uh, mm-hmm. and the reason why the nh why we've struggled to land telemedicine as a long care thing mm-hmm. long-term thing remember that i mean people have forgotten but push doctor before that well that was direct I mean? consumer like, trying to do the yeah, same thing yeah yeah, yeah. Very challenging. Anyway, we really appreciate all of your insights. I mean, this I know this is just the tip of the iceberg. We've only got so much time. Um, and we're also really, really excited to have you as one of our faculty mentors um, on our commercial programme, which is coming up soon. Go to medicfootprints.org forward slash commercial. Um, and yeah, if anyone wants to get hold of you, how do they do that, Guy? Uh, they can reach out on my personal email address or link to me on LinkedIn. So guy underscore gross at hotmail.com. Please feel free. Uh, or you are you can brave. You are a brave man. I have to say that. It, I'll, I'll take criticism. Um, so by, by all means, feel wow. free to reach out with personal questions. You do questions. realize it's going to be like hundreds of people. Okay, cool. It's fine. I tend to answer everyone. So please feel nice. free to reach out. Brilliant. Thank you. And no yeah, speak soon. Bye, Bena. Thank you very much. Bye.